Welcome to the Yorkshire Grit Podcast. Tackling some of the biggest issues in men's mental health. Right, hello, welcome. Try and keep a straight face. It's a moment I've been waiting for for a while. We are in Shepherd's Bush. We are at Lacol HQ. Lacol have really kindly getting behind a mini-series with Yorkshire Grit at the moment, which is something we've kind of been working on for a while. And uh, we've come down today and we set up and I'm really lucky to begin this mini-series, which is starting it with someone who means an incredible amount to me as a, I kind of want to say a friend and a mentor. I'm not going to say so much as a competitor because he, he was a lot better than me, but I'm really honoured to be joined by Yanto Barker. Thank you very much. <laughs> You could laugh. It's <laughs> all right, whatever comes out. <laughs> it's good to be back, actually. Getting off the train, King's Cross, Shepherd's Bush. No, Goldhawk Road. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. Yeah. The Yorkshire Grit Podcast. No, that's a political. Come on, how are you doing? <laughs> no, I'm well. It's busy. There's lots going on. Lots of things for me to work out. My job is pretty much all the non-standard processes that aren't running smoothly. My job is to work them out and make them a bit smoother so there's a never-ending you know process of finding answers to slightly difficult questions for people who you know because this is a local theme podcast today you've got thousands of customers probably more than thousands of customers i don't want to know giving them a bit of an insight that they might not always know about local because you know people buy stuff every single day and you know off asos or reebok and we don't really we just get it delivered and we don't really care about where it's come from or where it's sourced from. So today's kind of a little bit of a, anyone who's bought Lacol, future, past, present, we're going to give them a bit of an insight into how things go down with the guy who founded it all. Now, it's a bit of a generic question, so I'm sorry, but tell us kind of how it all started. Because I do, you know, I know you very well, but can you tell us from birth, kind of up to, well, not up to, we'll fill in the gaps, but give us a holistic approach to kind of like your upbringing. Wow, that's, uh, that's going back a bit now. I was born in Wales, Machantleth Hospital. What? Say that again. Machantleth Hospital. Can, can you spell it? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of C's and H's and, and double L's. It's West Wales, if you don't know. If you if you imagine Wales north to south, it's about halfway down on the west coast. So um, not quite on the coast, but five miles inland or so. Um, born to two very hippie parents. Hippie, who, right? Yeah. Alternative. Very different to me now, anyway, that's for sure. Uh, my mum ran away from London. Not underage or anything but she was 18 or 19 and she ran away to Wales to live a freer life you know outside of the city uh, met my dad who comes from a banking family from Herefordshire uh, they met each other and quite soon afterwards and not certain about how responsible they were at the time but six months later I was conceived so what was your mum and dad's name Louise is my mum yeah and Ewan is my dad I don't speak to my dad actually have a complex relationship there but that's probably a whole nother <laughs> that's like a therapy thing yeah we'll yeah. do that after and i'll yeah, charge that, you accordingly yeah yeah that's another subject but um yeah brought up by my mum and a single family single parent family with my sister my first sister that is who's 18 months younger than me in wales until we were 11 and then moved to devon and my mum remarried and i had another family basically so i have two other sisters that are half sisters on my mum's side so i was a football player in wales that was my passion. That was my sport. And actually, there's a, an interesting story about my first kind of encounter with entrepreneurialism was, this is bizarre how similar to my adult life this, this little story I'm about to tell you is. So I used to get on a school bus to go to school when I was 11. And it stopped at a lot of places, but it stopped at two schools. They're about three or four miles apart. 
and it stops at my school first on the way home and the other school on uh, second. And if you were really fit, you could run to the other school and beat the bus. After stopping at the corner shop to buy ice pops or lollipops, or whatever. So I worked this out with a few of my mates and I'd go down with 50p and buy five ice pops or 10 ice pops or five or 10p each. I can't remember exactly. And then I'd sell them on the bus for 50p each on the way home on the summer days. So I used to do this, but I was only one of probably two people who were fit enough to guaranteed get the bus. You imagine at 11, no mobile phones, like oh, I'd have yeah. to reverse charge my parents to come and get me, which was quite a long way. I lived quite away from a school. So there wasn't a lot of competition to be able to do that. And on a hot day, you could absolutely sell it. I could fit as many ice pops as I could fit in my pockets. I could sell on the bus, like guaranteed. Oh. And how long did you have before they melted? Is that why you had to be so quick? No, you had to be quick just to get on the bus. But as soon as you got on the bus, you, you were selling sell them, them. Sell yeah, them. instantly. So I was doing that and I had like pockets full of change, you know, and people were like bargaining the price of the last one or the last two would go up quite significantly compared to the first ones because it was a hot yeah. day and everyone wanted a nice pop yeah exactly and then the only cost was i used to work through my shoes in about a week or two weeks i'd have to get a new pair of shoes but because it wasn't long enough my mum would take me back to the shop and say my son's shoes are falling apart already i mean she didn't say i was doing a five mile run three days a week <laughs> to get from one <laughs> bus stop to the other but i made quite a bit of money doing that and that was my first, that was 11 years old, that was my first kind of experience of entrepreneurialism that required quite a significant amount of fitness as well to deliver. I remember ice pops. There were two types of ice pops. There were the cheap ones and then they brought out the double one. They were the better ones because you could snap it in half. Actually, I was a little bit entrepreneurial. You can remember Pokemon cards? Remember the football stickers, the albums that you did? I used to sell those. Yeah, it's funny that, isn't it? You always kind of start, there's always like a glimmer. Was that, that's primary school. That was secondary school, first year of secondary school, 1991, that was. And then we're still in, uh, we're in Devon now. No, that was um, Wales. So then I moved to Devon when I was 11, 12. I moved to a Steiner school, which is probably relevant to anyone who actually knows what a Steiner school is. It's outside of the national curriculum and they have a remit to design their own curriculum around a philosophy of Steiner, who was a German, probably a philosopher as well as uh, educationalist. And uh, my parents found out about this school and were really keen to send both myself and my sister to this school. And I think the main way to describe it was they sold the concept on the fact that they bring up a child as a whole person, as a personality, that it's important to give time and energy and space to flourish rather than what can be criticized of mainstream schools, which is, you know, plugging full of information to get good test results, to give everyone you know, a positive rating in national curriculum rankings and everything. So that pressure was taken off. And I only took three GCSEs as there wasn't the requirement to take any at all, but it was a voluntary thing to take three as a, as a kind of demonstration that I can read and I can write and I can spell and I can, you know, add up basic maths. So English literature, English language and maths were the only three GCSEs that I took. And there was a relationship with the colleges that actually the kids coming out of the school who wanted to go on to higher education above were generally pretty motivated and bright and did go on to do a good job so they would get into the colleges on a reference rather than on qualifications of nine or 11 GCSEs or whatever. That just strikes me as something that should be mainstream really shouldn't it? It sounds that that makes a lot of sense to me. So it makes a lot of sense until I include that they like to try and balance a child as they're growing and one of the things that they consider an imbalance is a high level of competition so I didn't get oh, on yeah. at this school at you all. Were, you were screwed. 
I was just like the most competitive child they'd ever had in the in the school, and and I was discouraged, continuously discouraged, which actually made no difference whatsoever. I was it was irrelevant. I'd rather just miss school than be discouraged from either football or tennis or rugby or cycling, which I'd started taking up by the time I got to Devon. Well, that's what I kind of wanted to get onto because you are a um, competitive animal, and that's not a bad thing. Harnessed in the right way, that's a really good thing harnessed and focused because without it it can lead to quite devastating consequences when did cycling kind of how did that come about was it the generic got a bike for my birthday or was it kind of a little bit yeah nearly so i'm going to describe it slightly differently i have a competitive animal inside me you do yeah but it's not me so there's a distinction between how you described it because i talk about this quite a lot now as a retired athlete and when i ride or if i enter a competition now my competitive animal athlete persona wakes up, comes out, gets out, you know, gets an opportunity to run around for a bit or cycle around for a bit. And it's used to being the number one thing in the world. You know, that's what I did before I, before I had a family, before I was married. Um, and I was dedicated to it. It was the most important thing to me. And it, the animal inside me, that that personality, that character is used to that. So whenever it gets an opportunity to get a number on its back mm-hmm. <laughs> it wants to be it wants to be the number one because that's all it's ever known that's all it's ever been because when i retired then i had a family and i was dedicated to my business anyway going back to the kind of beginning of how i took up cycling in devon i had a kid a friend at school who asked me if i wanted to go for a mountain bike ride on the weekend and i was like yeah brilliant but i don't have a bike and he said oh you probably fit my dad's bike come around i'll i'll set it up for you yeah, and yeah. you can go for a ride we did that one weekend on Saturday, I, li- I lived in Devon near Dartmoor, so it was really hard roads. And we did probably 25-mile loop, nothing major, on mountain bikes, but mostly on the road. And I was good. And I just felt this kind of sense of, it slowed me down. It calmed me down to exercise yeah. in a way that almost made me a better person after the exercise than I was before the exercise. So imagine me as... Well, you've always said cathartic. You, you, you've used that. I had to Google that word. <laughs> well, it was. So as a kid, you know, I probably... I didn't ever get diagnosed with ADHD, but I could have easily been recognized as on the spectrum because I had so much energy. And rather than being disruptive because I was just a naughty kid, I was disruptive because I had so much energy that I didn't know how to control, didn't know what to do with, hadn't matured enough as a person to know how to channel that energy. But you were never naughty. Uh, did, was, you, did you go was, through the stage of getting pissed behind the, the school? And... No, I didn't drink probably until I was about 20 really yeah i didn't even drink coffee until i was about 23 or 24 i just dedicated to exercise i loved it anyway so this whole weekend thing was like the beginning of my cycling career i then took some advice and entered the mid devon cycling club who was a structure and some individuals who really supported me colin lewis who's recently passed away actually Uh, among other people gary dowdle people that i remember and helped channel that energy into something positive into results at the end of the, the end of the day or the end of the weekend or whatever and my love for cycling was instant. It was like I'm at home on a bike. I've always been a little bit out of, I didn't meet a lot of people like me. I didn't know kids with as much energy or as much drive or as much like just intensity. And you're at home. I was, I was pretty antisocial as a kid. I don't keep in touch with any of the friends at school from the age of when I went to school till I left 16. Didn't keep in touch with anybody. Does that bother you? No, they just weren't like me. They weren't, I had nothing in common with them. I was driven and focused and dedicated and by the time I was 17 I was racing internationally around the world on the GB team I was I was busy I was focused I didn't I wasn't interested in distractions that that were anything that was taking my 
focus or attention away from I already was thinking Tour de France, you know, stage wins, world yeah. championships. Well, you have to. Yeah. You have to. So I wasn't particularly sociable. I went to bed at 9.30, 10 o'clock every night from the age of, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18. My sister went completely off the rails. What's your sister called? She's called Kira. And at 14, she left home, basically. Left school, left home. And I saw the pain and anguish my mum went through. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, no, no I mean... That, that must have been a tough... Not that you'd ever admit it, but it must, ah, be, it must have been quite a hard... It's a weird one. Do you know what? I've genuinely never, ever spoken about this personal side of my life and I've done a lot of interviews I was just saying earlier but you just get I didn't know any different I just got on with it and I saw my mum go through pain where she on a you know Saturday morning mom, my sister didn't come home on a Friday night and she'd be like do you know where she is do you know who she's seeing do you know where she might be we lived in Devon and you know she'd be going as far as Bristol or you know all over the place like genuinely just off the rails so I think that also made me see how much damage that caused and not want to be an additional you know, burden. strain or burden or concern to my parents. But at the same time, it, that wasn't my primary thought. My primary thought was I want to be in bed early so I can get up and be fit and healthy and, you know, beat my my friends. You sound just like um, Stephen Gerrard and talked about eat, sleep, breathe football. Bed every night. He wasn't interested in all his friends in gangs in Liverpool. And... It wasn't a choice. It was a compulsion. And the compulsion got attached to the exercise, to the cycling, to the competition, to the bike itself to the idea of the bike, nothing else. There was no space for anything else you know in what? my head. You love watching these serial killer documentaries on Netflix and they go about, it had a compulsion. I had to do it. You don't know what I mean? But, but it's channeled in the right way. But that's your makeup. That's you as a person. Like, I'm lucky enough to know you. And I, I seldom say, you know, I, I've very rarely seen people. Roger Federer has an aura around him. But you have this kind of, because you believe in people. I've never seen someone, and the, Max said it earlier, and... Rob said it on that thing. It's it's rare that you get someone who believes in you that that much, and maybe it's because you know from what you're saying, it wasn't the straightforwardest upbringing, and then you found this cycling and you joined Mid Devon CC, and then there was this release, not in the terms of you know self harm, alcohol like kids at that age can do. You're quite lucky you found it. Yeah, massively lucky. But I say lucky. I think I've thought many times about if I could or should do things differently. Sometimes in my decision to take risk or push or be ambitious, which often comes with a lot of tension, anxiety, stress to deliver what I've committed to. Generally, once let's say starting a business, I won't go on to that too much yet, but you make a decision and the risk is generally upfront and the risk goes down the more successful you become. And that you mitigate that risk with building the structure and doing the sales and generating leads and all those things. I often think if I could not do that, if because sometimes I have to ask my wife to remind me how stressful that was or, or you know how much I committed to and then how much maybe I regretted committing that much because I didn't realize it was going to be such a big job. But that is who I am. And in the same way, you know, the competition side of me was, like I said, it was just at home. It, it It's like... I think about how you connect with the world as like a puzzle. Sometimes it's a graph, but you kind of connect with the world in, in a way that validates who you are. Like there's no point me trying You're to dumb tried. myself down and be, a I don't know, something average in a way that that I would just probably now describe as not me. There's no point me trying to pursue a life that is not me. So I've been fortunate enough, and this is probably where the school comes in, to have been validated and given enough space and freedom to make my own choices from a very young age. My mum was a hippie, so she never, ever told me what to do, apart from don't join the army. That was the only thing she ever said. Yeah. 
so I've been quite used to being responsible for my own actions, taking on and accepting the repercussions of those actions, regardless of whether I could see them at the time I was making the choice or not. And coming to terms with that's a reality that I live with, that's a reality I'm faced with, and that I'm resourceful enough to find the answer, whatever it might be, even if I encounter a problem that is of my own making, entirely out of my vision at the time I made the decision, it's still my job and responsibility to find the answer to overcome whatever that challenge might be. Now, that is a characteristic inside my personality that has been given, started younger than most. And yeah, because most people look to blame. But you hear this a lot among entrepreneurs who chose to accept that as a given and accept that as a reality and not deter them from making big, ambitious choices, not make them flinch and shy away from what is potentially a huge opportunity, massive success or all that kind of thing because of the risk that's attached to it. You know, I'd rather start and fail than not start at all. And this also goes back to the parallels between racing as a professional athlete and being an entrepreneur or a business leader or a CEO or MD or whatever. It's just about working through a process and, you know, not being shy. Don't flinch. Don't don't be scared. You know, yeah, we'll but, work yeah, it out. The average person does. The average person ruminates over, oh, should I even wear this today? Should I even... You know, the average person doesn't have that kind of that lucky mindset of um, so failure to me used to be an interesting word because me and my fr best friend, Ross, we used to go for 10 mile runs when we were 16 on a Saturday morning. And we used to say this really stupid thing. It's a bit cringy. We used to say, um, do you know what failure is? Because we were like, come on, keep going. We nearly finished it. And we'd shout at each other and he'd say, no, all I know is if you ask me to write. Uh, an exam on failure I'd fail because I don't know what it is and it was so cringy it was... but that's good I think that's excellent <laughs> yeah but and we do this 10 mile run in trainers and and there was no one else like me and him we were that motivated my connotations with failure have changed recently like uh, I don't set the bar as high as I used to because expectations are real killer but to me it sounds like you don't really uh, you don't really believe in failure I do believe in failure I don't believe that the concept of failure is allowed to have an influence on my decision-making process while it is very present in my mind. So I very consciously detach my life or separate my life into layers, okay? And as a business leader, I've got to be careful not to lose my train of thought again on these things. It is, it is a little bit complex in my head and I have to kind of make sure no, I keep I, it simple. I can see the cogs turning. So, so basically, uh, my view is my critical thinking has to design the right thing to do, right? That's utilizing all the information, data analysis, all that kind of stuff. And that that designs a strategy, a path, some steps, all the people that need to be involved in that step, and you know how long it's going to take, how much it's going to cost, all that kind of stuff. Now, separate to that and running in parallel to that, but not touching it, is my feeling of, can I make that happen? Is that too much? Am I scared? Is that going to be failure? If that failure did occur, how significant is that on my life? You know, am I going to be bankrupt? Am I going to just lose a bit? Am I going to lose face, reputation, all those things? And I analyze those two layers 100% independently of each other. So I'll run through the critical thinking. I'll take all the information that I can possibly gather to inform this decision, including my other directors or other experts that I include as part of advisor, whatever role positions, and we design a process. Once I've done that, then I'll go home privately and think to myself, how do I feel about this? Where's the risk? This is when Nicola gets... She's, this is where she really, really helps. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And then I go, okay, so I fully, like I fully immerse myself in my fear, my anxiety, like let all the worst case scenarios run around in my head for a while. 
and then say, okay, so am I changing my mind based on the fact that I've just designed a strategy on all the factual fundamental information that I have available to me, come up with the absolute best answer that I can possibly design amongst myself and my peers and all the people involved in the decision-making process of which there are many, many bright people. It's not just me. Am I going to change that because I'm scared about it? No, never. Mad way of thinking, Yanto. You're crazy. Because you're still making the decision even though you're scared. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so scared just, all the time. But you take the emotion out of it and just look at it purely. It's going to be, it's going to, yeah, it's going to be difficult, but I'm going to do it. So I don't want to say I take the emotion out of it because the emotion is desperately trying to get back in. So I say to my wife, sometimes it takes me all of my energy to not let the fear touch the decision-making process. Like I'm literally psychologically straining like a 20-minute effort on the bike to keep the fear out the way so my decision-making process is clean of fear. Then when it's done, I've signed the contracts, I've employed the people, I've paid the money. Then the fear can come and it can do whatever it likes, but it's too late now because we've already committed. So Yeah, that I get. That I could do. That little bit there. That little brief moment, just do it. Yeah, that bit I understand, but the other stuff I don't. But uh, look, we're going to get onto the call and the business stuff later on. We were mid-Devon CC. Totnes? Yeah. Totnes via? Totnes via, yeah, I won yeah. that race. Yeah. Uh, so did I, actually. I didn't want to like, brag her out. <laughs> <laughs> Was it, which year did you win? The, well, they actually cancelled the last stage, so just as well, because that was dead early. Because <laughs> it was so flooded. But um, Mid-Devon CC, they're a big club. Steve Lampier kind of territory. No, he's more Cornwall. Cornwall. Uh, yeah. But Jez Hunt. Yeah, Jez Hunt. Hard, tough man. So tell us about the earliest days of getting into the racing, because this is kind of, this is what has structured you. And... So I have an interesting experience of racing. As a junior, internationally... Or in fact, as a junior, full stop, I was the best against the opposition that I raced against. And since being a junior, I got less and less good compared to my competition. So I was UK national champion. I won the national series and I won like junior tour of the peaks by a record winning margin of six and a half minutes to second place. And I was top 10 at the world championships in Valkenburg on a crazy, crazy course, which they use now for Amstel. Is this when you were like, what, 14, 15? No, no, this is 17, 18, 18. I raced the national team. I was, you know, my my age group is Fabian Cancellara, Tom Boonen, of people that will have heard of. And I I was in the break with them. My very first Junior World Cup series was in the break with both Cancellara and Tom Boonen. And does he remember Fabian? Because you obviously work with him now. Yeah, I remember him winning all the time trials. Like, So he'd often win the races overall. He was like he was a big guy then, but he was you know so strong. And generally, the good juniors win everything. It's not like you have proper climbers. Anyway, so I went from that, like thinking, you know, stages of the Tour de France, totally up, like potential world champion. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this happen. These are, the, these are the guys that I'm racing with, the best in the world. And then I moved into under 23, category and it just went oh my god what just a different level <laughs> yeah a different level yeah one the races got more they started to sort of segregate into the specialists so you then did get 10k climbs which you didn't really get in junior races so if you weren't 65 kilos or 61 kilos then you just had to do ridiculous power to stay stay in the front group and you're also when when you're a junior you race against 17 and 18 year olds when you're another 23 you race against 19 20 21 and 22 year olds so you just doubled the size of your pool. Mm. And that meant if you were fifth or let's say you were seventh or eighth in a race as a junior, there's now 14 other guys who are in front of you because of just the volume of people in that race or the volume of people at a high level. I want to ask you a question because I've rudely interrupted you there. I'm sorry. Please don't lose your trailer thought. Anyone who doesn't know you, 
it's hard to kind of pinpoint what sort of rider you were. And I've heard a few people say this, but you, you could climb anything like what, like two, three K, nothing too steep. You weren't like massively punchy, but you were, you had a kick. You could win from like a small group. You didn't like massively always win time trials, but you could, you were unbelievable at time trialing. Were you the definition of like a ruler? Like, would you say? I mean, you're probably better off answering that question by the guys that I raced against, you know, your Pete Williams or I don't know, whoever, you, you know, what, what you would describe like that. But to me... You can't do everything. I, I was pretty average, to be honest. And I would describe myself as, and I would say this, as a team captain, I was a thinking rider. So if we didn't have radios in a race, I would be the one to make a call. And I can remember a couple of occasions where I really earned my position. One was tour of uh, Korea. And it was, I think it was the last stage or the penultimate last stage. And it was a flat circuit around this massive city. And we had lots of like really big roads, three or four lanes wide and underpasses and all this kind of stuff. And a breakaway went, there was a really strong Aussie team there, really strong, a couple of strong Aussie teams and a couple of strong like um, composite teams and stuff. And the break went right quite early. And we had a guy, yeah, first on GC, ended up winning it. Who was that? Christian House. So we let the break go and we were riding it back. But we also were trying to win the stage and the points jersey. Like, like it was good prize money. We were all really committed. So the break went and it was going. And we were riding with another team. And I was watching the time gaps just going and going and going out and out and out. And it was like, nah, this needs... To... We didn't have radios in. And the lag that we were getting information from if someone went back to the team car was just too too great. And I remember saying to Pete Williams, who you know, because he was one of the guys riding, I'm like, we need to change this. That gap is going out. It's been going out for the last 30 Ks. It needs to come back now. Like, you need to just start pulling different turns. So, you you know, when you pull like a... Through and off. A sustained, no, a single file turn. But you're pulling like, let's say the guys are doing a minute or a minute and 30 each. And there's six or seven guys. I'm like, you need to pull a full 15, 20 second turn. Like, absolute full. You need to be gasping by the time you get to the back of your line. And we need to just make that gap come down. We ended up catching that break with 200 meters to go. No. And I made the call like, Pete, you need to pull 100% turns now. Tell everyone in the line, 100% turns. Don't stop. Don't slow. Like, no holding back. This is 100%. Otherwise, we're not going to get, we're not going to catch them. That was my, I could see that happening. I was doing those calculations. That was my job. Isn't it mad? Like some of your best achievements people don't even know about. <laughs> it's just a moment in a race. Oh, yeah, but it was just my job, and it was just an understanding of that gap is going out. It needs to come back again. I'm not, you know, I'm not special. I can just see the information unfolding in front of me. I need to make a decision, and that's my job in business. You know, if I have to make a decision, I see the information unfolding. Team captain. Yeah, that's your that. Yeah, I get that because you are a leader. Yeah, you are. Yeah, I can see you doing that. I can see how you label yourself that definitely, and not in a big-headed way. I think anyone would agree. This is a personal little story, and I'm, this isn't about me today. I do remember doing the Tour of the Fens in 2012, and this was my first ever Premier Calendar race I finished, even though it wasn't labelled a Premier Calendar. It basically was. And it was 129 miles, and I'd got up the road with Tom Barris and a few others, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm in the break. This is unbelievable. Like, and then um, we got this thing saying, oh, there's a group coming over with about nine people. And, um, oh, but don't worry, they've got like, it's three minutes away. We think, all right, yeah, no, we can do this. This is really good. I reckon within about, I can't, next thing I knew, you, <laughs> Rob Partridge. I'm laughing. Yeah, Martin Blocky, who, by the way, machine. A, yeah, yeah, machine. Ian Wilkinson, I want to say, Chris Opie, yourself. And there was only one ride, I think Tom Stewart hung on, or, and Ryan Mullen. 
They were in the break as well. They're in the break. We we genuinely dropped every single person apart from How did the that entire happen? team. Yeah. I, I just want to kind of that is a funny story. It's 2013, by the way. Was it 2013? And I remember because everyone else was calling you like US Postal and So that was funny because it was the week before the Nationals. Tour series had just finished. We needed the distance in our legs. And I had a conversation with Steve Benton, team coach, the night before, where he's saying, I really need everyone to do it, get a proper workout today. And it was my idea to say, we should just not do the race for two hours. So we'll sit at the back, let it unfold, and ride it down. That was me saying that. And, he, and, I, and I pitched it to him and he said, yeah, that can work. Because I said, that way, we all get a proper workout. We get two hours of rolling around in a bunch. Then we have team time troll for as long as we can and as far as we can. And we get as close to the front as we can. It's a challenge. I reckon we can do it. Someone, Marcian could, you know, he could do special things. His nickname was Multipass <laughs> because he could make it across to any group, anywhere, anytime, on he his could. own. He yeah, could. absolutely. And I'll follow on with a little anecdote about that in a second. But basically, we started riding. I said to Ian Wilkinson, again, this is another... He's hard of, He's hard as nails. This is another team captain kind of decision where we said we'd give it two hours. We actually gave it an hour and 45. And I looked at the gaps, as you just rightly pointed out, three minutes in a GB, uh, in a UK Premier series is actually quite a big gap yeah. they don't often come back again that size gap if it's a working with, group with guys like ryan mullen with guys Matt like controls yeah, up there, yeah. It's not Tom Barris, yourself yeah so i said ian that's long enough we need to we need to start moving now so we went to the front positioned ourselves started riding made it look like we were just going to ride to the rest of the group and then marcin just absolutely put the hammer down in the hardest crosswind section and it took about five k's but one by one everybody disappeared until it was only us and then it's not Rob, very nice that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I remember Rob Partridge going, he literally went, woohoo, in the line while we're all doing 450 watts or whatever. And I said, Rob, there's a long way to go before we could start saying woohoo because there's now a four minute gap to cross to the front, front yeah. of the race. And we did. But at the end of the day, it was, we weren't scared of failing. We all needed a workout. It was the nationals the next week, which is actually what we were working towards. Yeah. We just so happened to execute an incredibly well, like a difficult plan, but we executed it incredibly well and it delivered a result. We got first, second and fourth, I think. Well, I think I lasted because I wasn't technically very good. So I didn't know what a crosswind was really then. And uh, I learned fast and I couldn't hang on. I remember Tom Stewart, I was like, well, Tom Stewart, if I can hold on Tom Stewart, surely I can hold on here. And then you guys were at the front doing through and off. I was like, well, I'm really good at through and off. Like, I'll, this is mint. And then after about 30 seconds, you're like, oh, I wonder if they're going to ease up here. And then you suddenly notice like Tom Stewart's now in the gravel. And like, I'm in the gravel. I'm like, well, this, oh yeah, this, so this is what a crosswind is. And then within about, I reckon, 90 seconds max I lasted. And I was gone. It's funny, you know, talking to people <laughs> who I raced against because I wonder if I was a bit mean sometimes because yeah, to be, oh, definitely, yeah. To yeah, be yeah. competitive, you, you have to be. You're ruthless. Yeah, I remember, so the one thing I was going to say about Marcian was at the end of that race, we ended up getting in a smaller break, so it split again. So we got across all the way to the front and then we started attacking them. Then we did go away with Ryan, uh, Marcian, Josh Hunt, Steve Lampier, who was in a different team. We were going through and off, like absolutely smashing it. And then I hear this noise from behind. And it's Marcian shouting at me, who's come across a minute gap on his own. So we did all the through and off to get to the front of the race. We attacked each other like he, he's mental. Six guys got away. We were going as fast as we could. And then Marcian crosses us, you know, spends eight minutes of 450 watts again on his own. And that's, no no wonder I was intimidated at Premier Cup. And that's why we he got the name Multipass. Cause I was like, but he nearly punched me because I hadn't he said you didn't look round soon enough. <laughs> I was like, nobody can come across yeah. that gap, Marcian. I didn't need to look round. No one was coming. And then there you were. What are you doing? It's your own fault for being so strong. Do you keep in touch with him? Is, is he is Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I'll see him on Instagram. But 
everything was going really well. Under twenty three, doing well. You moved to France for a bit, um, but then you've had a you had a bit of a break with cycling. Yeah, I got to a point where I'd been a professional cyclist and full time with nothing else. You know, no no other important things to do apart from ride my bike and race my bike since I was sixteen years old. I got to twenty six. I got to the end of my twenty fifth season, which is two thousand and five. I had I'd been on the podium at the nationals and I was top ten and best British finisher at the Tour of Britain on GC, and I hadn't got a contract and I was just like this Done. is yeah. So I worked my way through the French system. I came back to uh, DFL. It was in the UK in two thousand and five, yeah, yeah. and another guy who really looked after me was Steve Collins from that team. Um, he's also now passed away, but really really sound guy, amazing kind of leader and example and businessman. And I was like, I'm not getting paid the contracts I need to retire. At you know, a more average age for a cyclist is 36, 37, maybe. I'm going to retire now because the prospect of having lived my entire life till the age of 37 as a cyclist in a bubble, good enough to be looked after really, really well. So I don't know about paying bills that much. And I've been given cars and booked flights for me and all that kind of stuff. So a little kind of yeah, a little pop star, not, not to the getting paid that much, but just to the way you're looked after. And then your ego being fed constantly with, oh, you know, it's great. And the, and the interviews and the, Podcasts series and whatever. events and the yeah, exactly. Otley crits and you're a celebrity and so I was like I'm gonna I'm gonna stop now I'm gonna take myself out of competition I'm gonna get another job you know I need to get a job that I can rely is gonna give me and pay me for the rest of my life and how old just... how old were you then so 26 so I did my last race in 2006 I'm born in 1980 so my last race in 2006 was the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne and then I quit basically cold turkey and didn't exercise, didn't race for 18 months. No, I didn't race for much longer than that, but I didn't exercise for 18 months. And I would say that time in my life was the hardest I've ever encountered. Really? I didn't have enough understanding and experience to know how to cope with such a challenge and such a change. And actually, it's not just people that are going through retiring from sport. Anybody who'd done a job for 10 years, and that's the only job they'd ever done, who then just stopped it overnight, would probably feel very similar to how I felt. There's an added layer with sport in that, you know, you have a level of notoriety and you have a level of kind of profile that people ask you about, talk about, it feeds your ego, it feeds your self-worth, it feeds, you know, things like the, the competitive animal gets fed by other people with this kind of energy and attention and light and feel-good factor and everything. And that it switched off overnight. I did a couple of jobs uh, between 2006 and 2009, which I hated. One of them was an estate agent. I can't imagine. <laughs> I sold, I sold one <laughs> flat to one person in six months, which was Keith Flint from The Prodigy. I no, sold really? sold a flat in Notting Hill, yeah. But anyway, so I, but I hated the job and I told my manager, I'm, after six months, I need to stop this. And I basically started thinking about what else I could do. So in that time, I was thinking, I'll start a business that way. I had met a few people, not that boss at the estate agents, but I had met a few people that I thought, I can be a better boss than this. Like, I can be a better manager. These guys aren't that smart. They don't care about me. They don't, they're not going back to something you said earlier. I truly believe, not just for myself, but in everybody in the vicinity that should be fulfilling their full potential. Yeah. And that's something that I am dedicated to delivering for myself. I want Yanto Barker to fulfill his full potential. And if I die at any age, and that couldn't be said by Anyone no who knows me, I'll be gutted. You, so, you, you, you want to be exhausted. You yeah, want to be able to yeah, say, yeah. 100%. So, but I also feel that about everyone around me. It's like, if we're going to do this together, what do you need? What do you need to be your best? How can I help you? How can I provide for you? My role in this business is actually giving people the resource, the space, the time, the energy to be able to deliver the 100% their best job every single day. 
And I think about that when I go to bed at night. You know, I think, how can I help these people be better than they are? How can I make them feel better, give them the right resources, sharper tools, you know, all this kind of stuff. Well, I was on Park Rash yesterday, Yanto, and I can tell you now you're doing a good enough job because every single other person was in the call. <laughs> it's also the thing about when you design kit, how can I help this person be the best cyclist they can be? What can I do to these shorts to give them an edge, to give them, you know, take away distraction, take away discomfort? Like, I'm dedicated and passionate about delivering that as a, as a service. It's, to... it's rare to see... Uh, so many, you know, I don't know who owns Castelli, I don't know who owns Pass Normal, I don't know who owns Black Sheep, whatever. The list, there's about 100 different cycle clothing brands just in the UK alone. I know your fingers tried and tested in the Propellum, but it really is. You really are. You, Anyone who does buy Lacol, everyone always says it's exceptionally made and it's like, I've still got bib tights. You know those bib tights? Are where they've got one tear now, but I've had them for five years. I was going to bring them today and show you, but I thought, that's a bit weird. It's <laughs> <laughs> a bit weird. Listen, I don't take it for granted that everyone gets that. And actually being a bit insecure that people don't get that is what is the driver to continue working hard to deliver that message, to, to deliver that experience to anybody that comes in contact. And I say this to everyone that works at the business, everyone that is a contact point for someone outside to experience Lacol, whether that's the logo, the kit, someone representing the brand, a partnership, a conversation, anything, like I want them to represent the true meaning of what I've built this business on, the values, the principles, the dedication, the commitment. And, you know, I remind people here, if you're having a conversation with someone, you represent the brand. If you've got a tear in your bib shorts, like, I'll sort that out for you. Mate, like, you represent years the brand. Old, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> I put up a really interesting Instagram picture the other day because for me, uh, even though I've, I have got a bias towards you and Lacolle, of course I do, the ASOS Airjack 851 is the daddy of jackets, winter jackets. It is. I don't care what anyone says. It, it's it's timeless. It's like denim. Even if people wear them now, they look cool, even though they must be, what, 20 years old now? The Assos, you may have had one, an Assos Air Jacket. You remember the, oh, just like X, you know. But the Lacolle stuff, it rivals that. And the bib tights and the jackets, it's well-made. It's robust. It looks cool. And just the sheer, I never thought, because when I first started working for you, I remember going up Fleet Moss and I saw one person in the call and I, and I stopped him. Even though I was going downhill, I shouted. I said, stop, come back. Who are you? <laughs> but now on Pat Rash, seeing all these people, it's like, how have you done that? A lot of hard work. <laughs> because it started off with Pendragon Lacolle 2009. Yeah. I mean, how have we done that? It's It's a huge collective process and we have, you know, spent quite a lot of money we have spent a lot of time designing things and, and trying to be effective in every decision that we do. And I do really work hard for every individual responsible for an outcome to believe in and care about that outcome and, and deliver to the highest, highest standard possible. You know, that is not an accident. But at the same time, you know, you need a little bit of, you know, good luck. You need a bit of, you know, fortune. You, you kind of pull it all together. I think ultimately in the end, if you do a good job, you will get there in the end. I'm 42 years old now. You don't look it. He doesn't look it, does he? I said to a friend of mine, I'm 42 years old, and I said, only by my late 30s did I genuinely feel like life was a meritocracy and a quality process and a dedicated, committed work towards your goal would result in a good outcome that filtered out people that had either really fortunate beginnings, either rich parents that, you know, provided them the best bikes or the best kit or whatever in the beginning for them to do well, or, 
you know, people opening or starting businesses in the right sector that went through a boom or whatever, like that within a five or 10 year window, it could really distort the true quality of either the entrepreneur or the quality of the idea or, you know, the drive and dedication to succeed of the founder. But after 20 years of being an adult, I really believe that actually, if you're doing a good job, it will get recognized, you will be noticed and you will make it somewhere. So that was a question I had in my head, which was like, if I do a good job, how will I know? And what should I measure it on? And actually, there's lots of different answers to the... Other you know, people but, will tell you. Yeah, but, you know, at 40, I've kind of felt like I've... Because I, I woke up on my 30th birthday really scared that I'd achieved nothing. I, I felt genuinely on my 30th birthday, the morning of my 30th birthday, I'm born on January the 6th, I woke up and I was like, I've achieved nothing. I cannot get to my 40th birthday and have the same thought. And thankfully, I did not have the same thought. That's <laughs> me. This is the Yorkshire Grit Podcast. Right then, well, let's get on to the lovely Nicola, who I've met, who's really lovely. She's really, um, I don't think she'll take it as an insult, you know, quite quiet. Does she ground you? Is yeah. she the most important cog? Yeah, definitely. 100%. She is an influence that allows me to be better at what I do best, that I wouldn't be able to achieve and I wouldn't be able to sustain without that regular. And listen, she might be quiet you know, out and about with me, because if that's how she comes across, but she is a strong, strong woman, an incredibly impressive person in my eyes. And probably of all the mothers I've ever experienced in my entire life, the best, at least as good as the best I can see and think. What a, and What a lovely thing it's say. Yeah, honestly, I'll try not to get emotional about it, but off the charts, good as a parent. How did you meet? Where did you meet? Cause she, was she up in Manchester? No. She, no, she just moved down. She was working for Lowcog uh, during the 2012 build-up to the Olympics. Yeah. And she came to a tour series at Canary Wharf. Funny story about her. So she came to the tour series to show her group, her management group, uh, what a bike race looks like before the Olympics. And a lot of them, you know, coming together for Lowcog is like, yeah. you didn't work there before. So, you know, so come in, organize Olympics, go again. And I was on the podium and then she was in the bar after the podium and I got chatting to her. <laughs> and uh, I might have said, did you see me on the podium? Oh, uh, you did. Yeah, I bet you did. <laughs> no, I didn't. I'm joking. <laughs> uh, she'll joke about that as well. Um, and did you hit it off? Yeah. Was it the type when you, when, you, when you date someone and you fancy someone or was it a slow burner? She, she won't mind me saying this. So I had had some very high maintenance girlfriends before her. Yeah. And she wasn't like that. And I could tell straight away. And it was a bit confusing. I can tell that. It was a bit confusing to me because I was like, well, that high maintenance type factor was the only experience I've ever had as a partner. And this isn't it. What does that mean? And it got me thinking, I was kind of inquisitive about who is this person and why am I attracted? But not like I've ever experienced before. This is different. This is... What, do you think this was love? Yeah, it was healthy. That's what it was. And I'd never experienced proper healthy love before. And that is totally the reason why she is my wife. Do you think you loved people before her? Yeah, I mean, of course, but it wasn't healthy love. Like that's, that's the only way I can describe. I was passionate, dedicated. I was with someone for six and a half years before Nicola. I was 32 when I met her, when I met Nicola. So I, I knew what long-term relationships were about. I knew how to commit. You know, I'm a dedicated person and everything, but it hadn't felt healthy and it hadn't felt easy. And... You know, marriage is difficult, but Nicola is an incredible person to be doing that with and bringing up kids and doing everything that needs to be done within the logistical 
kind of requirements of school and nursery and fees and this and that and the other. And sorry, I was going to tell you a funny story about Nicola because yeah. we got together. We had a first date three days after that tour series. Where was that? On the Queen's Jubilee, in the rain, on the river, packed full of people, which are all the things I hate most about being outside. She worked at uh, British Cycling Federation and she still had her phone. And I went to put my number in and it was already in there because she had been given that phone from the Federation as one of the pool of phones that get given out. Yeah by one of the coaches who I knew, Louis Passfield, who's an amazing guy, and I asked him for some advice on coaching uh, over the years. And when he left British Cycling, his phone got given to Nicola. So unbeknown to her, my number was in her phone the whole time. And she'd been at a tour series three years before, I think, that I'd seen her because she walked through the, all the riders to wave the flag in uh, one of the Birmingham rounds. I can't remember what it's called now. Anyway, and, I, and she, we managed to kind of pinpoint back to the fact that our paths had crossed a number of times. My number was in her phone. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so it's kind of like serendipity and it was it was meant to be. Were you confident? Yeah, I am a confident person. Stone cold. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could talk around it if you like, but... But it felt easy with Nicola. It yeah. didn't feel... And then you... Did you move in quickly after? Yeah, you? three months after she moved she... in. Yeah. And well, it was again, I met her in 30th of May. Literally, we were talking about this the other day. Dated on the 3rd of June was Queen's Jubilee. And she moved in during the tour of Britain that September, June, July, August, September. Into your place. Into my place. And my also, my youngest sister also moved in. So I left for the tour of Britain, September the 4th or 5th or something. And living as a bachelor in, in, a, in a flat of my own. And I came back to two women living in my house. One was my sister, one was my... And that was it. We were, like, committed. Then we moved about three months after that. We moved again into town, so into London, into Chiswick. So uh, Nicola was a bit closer to getting a job. And never looked back. Just an incredible person, an amazing... I, I remember the picture as vivid in my mind when I proposed to her. Because I went, I spent months and months organising a ring and getting this ring sorted to propose an engagement ring. And then when I actually got hold of it, I planned to I planned to organise an anniversary date thing on a weekend in Henley, which I like to go and they'll take her and say, I'm going to organise this date. And I had to tell her as well. So like, she is so intuitive. I had to tell her, I'm going to organise our date anniversary in Henley. So if I look at my phone or I'm a bit shifty, like I don't want to show you, it's that that's why. There's nothing else, no one else, does nothing to worry about. And secretly, I use that as a guise to actually organise my plan to propose to her. But when I got the ring, and that date that I'd planned, you know, got the ring in advance, was two weeks later. I literally could not wait two weeks. So I walked home, called her dad, said, I'm going to propose to Nicola. Oh. Do you mind? Can I have your permission, please? Yeah, yeah. And he was like, of course, fantastic. And you get on with him? Yeah, of course. Fantastic. Yeah, Nicola's parents are lovely. So I walked home, spoke to him. He said yes. I walked in the door, she was, it was probably like 6, 6.30 in the evening, lovely May uh, evening, and yeah, it would have been middle of May, uh, on a terrace that we had at the time, I literally knelt down, and she's, she didn't register, she just, like didn't clock at what was going on, and I was like, um, will you marry me? And she was like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, I was like, uh, please say yes. <laughs> and she, <laughs> she did, she, yes, she did, yeah. she did, she did. Yeah, so um, that was 2014. And we got married August the year after, 2015. And where did you get married? In uh, Norfolk. And then you had... Matilda. Matilda. Yeah. So that's that's an interesting thing because I retired from racing, from competitive racing full-time in August, August 24th, uh, 2016. And my daughter was born on December the 8th, 2016. So a perfect gap. And I say my daughter has been the massive gift to me because she is someone that I didn't want to miss 
on the weekends. Yeah. By and and genuinely, if I didn't have kids, I love Nicola, but she can look after herself. She's an adult. I would have got back to racing. I would have gone back into it unhealthily as a habit, as a compulsion. Fear, yeah, as a compulsion, as a fear of don't know what else to do. But having a little daughter and watching her grow literally by day by day, you see changes and everything. It was such an intense process. I needed that intensity and it was something that really got my focus on the weekends. I went to work and Nicola took her maternity leave. So for the first nine months, 10 months, you know, she, she stayed at home. But the gift that my daughter gave me to help me give up that competitive habit that I definitely had was probably one of the most amazing gifts that I could have ever wished for. She's only five. She doesn't know that. <laughs> You've done a lot. You're living in a pressure cooker in a way, but you handle it so well you, you wouldn't think. But you touched on it earlier. It hasn't all been plain sailing. There's been some pretty... But you're not... Like, do you cry? Do you ever cry? No. When did you last cry? Good question. I don't know if I've ever been asked that before. I can't remember when it was, at least. Nicola probably made me cry once. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not a crier. I'm more... I do get stressed. What's been the toughest moment? Was it that getting that investment? Yeah. There was a time when... I'd bought the Italian factory and it was a very big step up in what the complexity of the business looked like now from before that to after that happened. I talked earlier about taking risks up front and hopefully being resourceful enough to make that a success. There was five years where buying that factory in Italy and it being a success was not conclusive. And I genuinely went to bed every single night thinking that could be the last day I work on this business because tomorrow could be the end. I could, you know, there could be a curveball, you know, some something that comes out of, I just can't find the answer, I can't find the money and I can't make it work. And I would say that was the hardest sustained period of time because I think I write a diary and I measure my stress out of 10. And I have a like anecdotal level of six, six and seven I can do. I could do a year at seven, that's not a problem. Eight and nine and 10 of stress as in my ranking one to 10, like that, I need to be looking for solutions to make that go down again, like quickly, three, four months maybe. And at that time, I think I was probably at 10 out of 10 for four and a half years. And, and it was draining, tiring, psychologically exhausting. And, you know, going home every night, trying not to be a bad husband and, and a difficult dad and all that kind of stuff because of the burden I felt on my shoulders and responsibility. And I kind of just wrap it up in this whole thing where if the business didn't work, I personally would have been bankrupt. So I never would have bought a house, I never would have got credit, I never would have had lots of opportunity that you would have had if you didn't, if you'd never been bankrupt. I'd never had a job before. I would have started a business that failed, I would have been bankrupt. And I'd, I had the conversation on a number of occasions with Nicola at the dinner table where I said, I've taken some risks. I'm not 100% sure they're going to pay off. We could be going to your parents in a few months' time. And we'll, you know, with Matilda, who we only, we only had her at that time, and we'll be living in a spare room. Like, just, I need to make it, like, I just need to share this with you. I need to, it needs to be yeah, us yeah. together. Can you ask them if that's okay? Because my my mum hasn't got a spare room. Like, that's not happening. And that was a really difficult, that was a difficult time. And I was at 10 out of 10, like, like I said, I think only, I started getting addicted to gangster films and true life war decision-making processes because those are the only two things I could really think of that were more stressful than I was going through. And the reason why... Can I just interrupt you there? Because when I get stressed on a night, I have to go to sleep with horror films on. It de-stresses me. Interesting. (laughs) Well, I'll explain my rationale to, you know, gangster films was it's basically business, but if you make a mistake, 
at best you get kneecapped, at worst you get killed and all your family gets killed too. And I was like, well, I'm making decisions in work, but it's not going to kill me. My wife and kids are not going to get killed. So it's less stressful than them, at least. Well, that made me feel better. And then war films or war documentaries, actually, I found fascinating because two things. One, again, there was life and death situation happening all the time. And I do feel, while I think one of the unique things about, I think a lot of successful people and a lot of successful entrepreneurs do attribute a life and death intensity to a lot of what they do. So, like, we have to get to the right answer. If this was about my life or death, I couldn't feel more strongly than I already do about it. And I think that happens. And I think that's a common denominator of podcasts I've listened to and entrepreneurs I've heard speak. And I definitely have that. I'm not pretending it's real. And I'm not saying it's good. But I feel a level of intensity like this is life and death. We have to make the right decision. We have to push, push, push. This has to happen. And, you know, that that is something that reading about Second World War First and Second World War kind of examples and stories helped me understand and feel the pressure that they went through in a very real way. And reading about it was really important because it gives you time to process it. And the second thing about that was you could see a decision-making process from years in advance at the time and years afterwards. And it could be 10, 20, 30, 70, 80 years afterwards for the Second World War. And how the perspective on that decision changed from pre the decision, and it told you all the background and why they came to this and how they came to that and what data and information they were using to inform a decision and all the risks and all the number of people that would die if they made the wrong mistake and all that kind of stuff. And then there's the the, the decision makers on the day at the time, you know, D-Day landings, the, the weather forecast, all this stuff playing into the doubt. People saying, we shouldn't go now, we shouldn't go now. And then other people saying, no, we've got to commit to it. It's too much resource. The risk of taking any longer is means the secret's going to be out and they'll have reinforced you know, the landing spots like 10 times The level times of detail you, you, you go into is scary. Anyway, I was just saying, it's a really interesting process of time attached to decision-making processes because with the perspective of time, everything looks a lot easier. In the moment and before it's happened, it's so much harder. And it, there is definitely no certainty. So you look at and you read about real-life examples of like this was obvious, well, that was the right thing to do. It definitely was not at the time or before. Well, they said that with uh, VAR. In the split decision, oh, it's not a penalty. But when you slow it down and you slow it down again and you slow it down again, it, well, oh, well, with hindsight, it, it does. But in the moment of the action, it, so yeah, I completely get what you say there. I, I want to start wrapping it up. There's two questions that I kind of always ask people. I think I know who you're going to say. Who's the best rider you've ever ridden with? How do you know who I'm going to say? I think you're going to say Bob Jungles. I probably wouldn't have said Bob Jungles. Because I, <laughs> I remember you saying something about Tora Poland. And you said, I've never seen anything like that. It was Tim Wellens. Sorry, Tim Wellens. I'll wrap that up, the whole story, to give everyone the context. Yeah. It was the hardest stage of my entire life. It was probably the hardest stage of most riders in that race's entire life. It was uh, stage seven of the Tour of Poland in the freezing rain, 250 kilometers, and absolutely eyeballs out racing from the start. We got to a finishing circuit of 30 kilometers and had to do two loops. And I was in a group with Peter Kenyuk, who was riding for Sky at the time. And we rode through the finishing circuits past all the buses, which is why it was so difficult. And of 180 starters that morning, 90 got off. And Pete Kenyuk looked like he was going to be one of them, except he ran into his Sky bus and he got on an electrically warmed rain jacket, which had not been in his wet bag in the team car, but was in the bus for when it's finished. Put it on, zipped it up, turned it on, got back on his bike and got back in the group that I was no. in through the cars. Genuine, 100% true story. Came back up to where I was and I was like, oh, 
I wasn't even wearing a jacket. I was wearing a long sleeve jersey because my team had given me a wrong, the wrong kit. Anyway, that's another story. But uh, that was such a difficult stage. Everyone was so unbelievably exhausted from the cold. And my most kind of memorable feeling the day after was the muscles in my neck, I'm pointing here, were so achy from gurning because I, it was a compulsive like gurning on the descent because it was so cold and they were just shivering so hard. And we were passing riders in groups all over the place, up the road, you know, groups much further ahead of us, where riders just getting off, getting in the team car, were like pale-faced, wrapped in foil blankets and everything. And I was just like, nah, we get to the finish. And me and one other of my teammates got to the finish. Who was that? Dion Smith, who rides for Mitchelson. Bike Exchange. Yeah, yeah. And the guy that won was Tim Wellens, won by about three minutes on his own. And I was like, that guy is a machine. Was that moment when you realised the difference between British Continental and World Tour? Because you did Kern, you got in the break at Kern. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I could compete at a World Tour level. I, I've been in top 10s um, in World Spain. Tour races, yeah, and, you know, a bunch of sprints and all sorts. And like I said, I was top 10 at uh, the Tour of Britain on GC and everything. But there is, like, the time and exposure to that level of racing, it makes a difference. And if you're doing Cobble Classics or whatever, you need to know it's left-hand side of the road here for this sector, it's right-hand side of the road there for that sector. You take a bottle and a drink here, you don't take it there, don't go back to the car here, stay out of the way of this pothole, stay out of the way of that rut in the middle there. Like, you literally, when you hear Magnus Baxter talk about how he won Paris-Roubaix, he will literally explain every meter of that race. I genuinely like listening to people who know what they're talking about. Generally, Dan Lloyd, Maggie. What about, they, what about Dave Miller? Dave Miller knows what he's talking about. Yeah, absolutely. But they do. They're experts. In the same way, when you've been doing a job for 20 years, they, they talk about 10,000 hours as being an expert. I sometimes point out to people who say, oh, you, you know what you're talking about. And I'm like, well, I've probably done 25,000 hours, not including the analysis time. And I'm a compulsive analyst as well. So at night, I can't stop my head going, what was the difference to this? What was the difference to that? How did the, how did this make a difference compared to that? And you know, what are the things that I can learn from it? That's a compulsion that I just can't stop. That's 25, 30,000 hours worth of my exercise, my activity that, that I bring. If you ask me a question, I'll fall back to all of that information. You coached me for about four or five months and without shadow, you get it. I wasn't going very well and I was really, I didn't believe in myself, did I? I was really bad going for really bad that's kind of when my thing all started you sent me a session you won't remember this 12 times up carlton bank you said 12 times three minutes but break it into two you can have a little break and you i mean, got up you at mean two, two times six two times six three yeah. minutes each yeah 12 times yeah and uh i remember getting to the top and this couple they'd watched me do it and i kind of collapsed at the end because each time when you went up the hill you wanted to hit the same lamppost you didn't want to fall off too much I remember thinking, doing it, sitting down and going, because I remember you told me once that you did six-hour rides every Saturday and Sunday to get ready for when you were at Rompro. Yeah. And I believed you. I did. That's the In the rain. I go to Brighton and back. It was raining when I left the door. It was raining all the way down there, and it was raining when I got back again, and I was on my own, just plodding away, 34K to now. But, but I believe you. That you wouldn't have missed it. Because you said the pain of missing it is harder than the pain of actually doing it. I tried to do this every year, but obviously didn't succeed. But 2015, I did not miss a single day's training. Not a second of an interval, not a minute of a ride, not any day. I that fully believe year. you. This is the thing. I actually do believe yeah. you. I did get ill on other years. That that year, I don't know how I did it, but I just managed to miss. I, I either felt rough on my rest days or I don't know. Because remember, we stayed in a hotel and we talked about Hardman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who's the hardest rider? you've ever ridden against grit tough i'm gonna say um not entirely 
conventionally, but Jeremy Hunt, who is a friend of mine. And listen, any international bike rider is hard, like genuinely. They're like boxers. They just take hits because you can't get to an international level without being knocked down and having to get back up again. Like Kwiatkowski, he's like... Yeah, oh, amazing. But Jez is a friend of mine and I'll, and I'll use him as the example. And I use him as a slightly exceptional example because he would make his life voluntarily worse. And now he's sort of five years, six years retired. He would smoke 20 pack of a evening of a stage of the Tour of Britain, drink three or four pints and get up and get in the break in the morning. And there is Legend. 2004 Tour of Britain stage round Cardiff. I got in the break with him after exactly what I just described. I, w- I was in bed at 9.30. He was out smoking 20 and his voice is all croaky and rough. And he's like, oh, the only way to get past this is to get in the break and sweat it out. <laughs> oh, my God. Were uh, you in awe of him or were you? I thought he was stupid because, <laughs> but he was, he just, he just did not let that be an excuse. Because he liked, you say, watching horror films, maybe smoking 20-pack and going to the bar in the evening at the hotel. Do you think smoking... That was helping him Does relax. make you worse at cycling. Yeah, definitely. Without a doubt. And so does drinking. You know, if you're going to drink four or five pints the night before, that's not helping. You know, a bottle of beer of an evening. I like to have a bottle of beer of an evening. It's not, that's not a problem. But yeah, the combination of late night, smoking, drinking, it's not good for cycling. Luckily, you've never struggled with that. I drink pretty regularly, but... It's how, kind how of much are we talking? A bottle a night, maybe four or five nights a week. I'd say more than more often than not. But I don't think it's a problem. I enjoy the taste. I'm not getting drunk, and I'm definitely not below par in what I need to do the next day. And your life's not unmanageable because that's what that's when they say it's a problem. Yeah, when your life becomes unmanageable. Yeah, there's lots of things that feel difficult sometimes, but I am who I am. If someone has an opinion about how much alcohol that is, I don't mind. They're entitled to an opinion. Just before we do go, LaCole, it's 2022. What's your vision in the next few years? Because you'll have a plan. Can you say too much? You know, you've got Bora at the moment. You've got Ryan Mullen looking good in a skin suit. What's he does he, look good in the skin suit. Looks really, that, that Irish yeah. champs kit is great. Yeah. Go on, give, give us an insight. What, what are you working on? I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to give you like the standard response to this. But it is my objective. We are working towards being the most respected and technical performing cycling apparel in the world perfect are you going to invent like some new kind of a crash resistant hopefully i don't know what that might be yet are you going to do like a um i don't know i always get the feeling that you're going to be like you're like james bond and q and then <laughs> you you're thinking of something that not, no no one else has done yet you know a bit like elon musk who wants to do a submarine or something it is a bit like that for cycling kit in a modest way but i do have a you know the back cave and I have prototypes, which I almost only wear prototypes. I'm testing or designing or, you know, verifying. Like I spend a lot of time in the wind tunnel. I spend a lot of time in the wind tunnel. Proving. I don't like marketing lines that aren't proven. So, you know, I've got a CMO downstairs who likes to write big, sexy marketing lines. Then that puts pressure on me to make sure that it's not just a marketing line. It's a real fact. And we back it up with results. So that's my job. I think it's phenomenal that you're the owner of a business and then... The people who do buy this kit and who are going to listen to this, they can fully believe that when they say tried and tested, it actually fucking is. Like, it's, it seriously is. It's not a gimmick. It's not, you know, I know it looks nice when Adam McRae is hanging out, you know, on the colder. He makes it look good. Yeah, it's quality. <laughs> listen, I, I, I'm not going to pretend it's, it's easy or that it's perfect or that everyone will like it. That's a reality. But what I hope comes across from this kind of conversation is the dedication and intent to make it as best it can be is 100%, not 99.9, 100%. And that comes from me. And then hopefully I inspire the rest of my team to deliver 
what needs to be done because you just just got to do your best. I don't want to look back, you know, whenever and think I could have done better. That is literally my kryptonite. Yanto, it's been exceptional talking to you. Thank you very much for having, you know, me, Charlotte here doing the um, the videos and stuff here in the old Trickle Factory in Shepherd's Bush. It's been interesting. I hope the people listening today come away knowing something that they didn't know before they're listening. Now they come away, they're a little bit more kind of tuned up in what is going on in the call day today. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. The Yorkshire Grit Podcast. Subscribe now on iTunes and Spotify.